Our scripture this morning is from Romans 8, Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Man, thank you, guys up here that serve us so well every week. And man, thank you. What a blessing to be with you guys and to hear you guys sing as well. Uh, so encouraging. Today's a, a, a great day. The, the world would look on today and many today are, are just celebrating that this is a great day. Mostly because it's Super Bowl Sunday. But sojourners are celebrating that this is a great day because we've just arrived in Romans chapter 8. Perhaps the greatest chapter in the scripture, if I were stranded on an island, I got one chapter, I'd, I'd draw this one out. Now, in the Super Bowl, here's the reality that in the Super Bowl, that you could, you could be here and you could say this is a great day because of the Super Bowl and because of Romans 8. I don't know how many that is, but it's a few. Um, but in the Super Bowl, here's what's going to happen, is that if you're in a team or on a side, one team is going to receive some bad news today. One fan base is going to get some bad news. But those in Christ Jesus are only going to receive good news, Amen. eternal good news. In moving from chapter 7 to chapter 8, one author talked about how we're moving from receiving this, this, this feeling, this thought that we're failed, we've we're weak, we're guilty to one in chapter 8 where we're loved, we're saved, we're saved. And in verses 1 through 4, that begins this great chapter in the message. And, and Paul gives us this great statement, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Then he explains that statement, further securing it, making it even more firm, and then gives the purpose for the statement. So this morning in verses 1 through 4, we get to hear the good news of no condemnation in Christ. We get to hear how that's possible, and then we get to hear what to do with it, its purpose. Chapter 7 was a chapter, it was full of tension, wasn't it? It was full of weight as it speaks of the law. And what does the law do? It comes in and it reveals sin, and the sin that's within us is worse than we think. It comes and it provokes sin even. It stirs sin up. Not sin that it creates, sin that was already there. But what the law doesn't do is that it doesn't take us in those places where sin is revealed and provoked. It doesn't then move us from those places. It doesn't save us from that sin. It's not able to. 
And so at this look of the law in chapter 7, it brings Paul to the end of himself as he says, wretched man that I am, who is going to deliver me from this body of death? And it even ends in this sense of tension. Verse 25, you're so thrilled that verse 25 exists, that thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but it doesn't end there. It ends with the tension of verse 25 that says, so then I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And, and what it does, I think, is it probably leaves all of us, maybe you left chapter 7 this way, ready to move on. Enough with the tension and the weight already. But that readiness to move on is good preparation for what's going to follow here in chapter 8. And indeed, we need to see these chapters as not as disconnected. These are very much connected and linked. Do you remember last week we we spoke of this one author who who said of chapter 7 and 8 that they're the same house, the house of the Christian life. And in chapter 7, chapter 7 is is not the woodshed that Paul needs to take us to before we move to chapter 8. Completely disconnected from the house. It's not the outhouse, right? Right? It's the same house. And Paul moves from chapter 7 to chapter 8, perhaps from the shadowy side to the sunny side. And hear the news of the sunny side. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. After chapter 7's weight and tension, the shadow and the coldness that we perhaps felt in the midst of it, we get a bask in the sun of chapter 8 that's warmer than we thought, and all the warmer because we felt the coldness of chapter 7. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there's these words that tell us that these two chapters are linked together. Therefore, it's making us look back now. It's making us look back. They link back with chapter 7. As Paul looks back, And what he said, maybe in chapter 7, verse 6, when he says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. And he puts that aside for a second to go through the tension of chapter 7 before he comes back to it in chapter 8. Or perhaps he looks back at the beginning of verse 25, where Paul says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he picks that up, and he looks at that deliverance, and he says that deliverance is the deliverance I'm talking about when I say in verse 1 that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Condemnation, that's the the opposite of this word we use so often in the book of Romans, justification. It's the opposite of justification. Condemnation means you're not right in the sight of God. You're very much in the wrong in the sight of God. It's the guilty verdict before God. It's the wrath of God hanging over us for our sin. And because of our sin, that's condemnation. And that's a verdict that Romans has clearly established is for all people deserved before God. It's right. Condemned is for us all. It's been explained that it's been deserved in chapters 1 through 7. Chapter 1, you have the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, of which we all walk in in some form or fashion. And he says, chapter 2, oh yeah, you think that you don't walk in that? Well, guess what? Your self-righteousness condemns you, and you commit the very same things that you condemn of those people you thought you weren't a part of in chapter 1. Chapter 3, it reiterates it. No one is righteous. Not one. None. Not at all. There is not one who escapes this, this condemnation verdict. That is what is deserved 
by all. Perhaps chapter 7 you left with that feeling. You can leave chapter 7 feeling weak, sensing your own guilt over this dark passenger of the sinful flesh that is with us in every turn. But that dark passenger reminds us that the verdict of condemnation is right because we are guilty from our sin. And that makes Paul's words in verse 1 really good news. There's a place for the guilty, for sinners, for those who are in the sinful flesh. There's a place of no condemnation. There's a place of no condemnation where sinners are safe, where the guilt that they uh, have among them is removed, where the wrath of God that rests upon them is taken away, where the power of sin in their lives is completely broken. Where is that found? He tells us. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Paul uses that all-important and one of his favorite phrases here, in Christ. It's a massive qualifier that is not to be overlooked. It's not that there's no condemnation, period. There's no condemnation in Christ. And that in Christ qualifies not only where we find this place of no condemnation, it's only found in Christ, it also qualifies how. How do we do this? By being in Christ. And Paul has been so clear in the book of Romans, hasn't he, that what unites us to Christ is our faith in Christ. We, we are putting all of our chips in, into Christ and saying, we are putting everything into you. We trust fully in you. That is faith in Christ. And by faith in Christ, we are united to Christ. We are what Paul says is in Christ. Being anywhere else, in anything else, in anyone else, could never secure this verdict of no condemnation before a holy God. All are condemned in their sin. All are condemned in Adam. Outside of in Christness, there is no place of no condemnation as God's wrath rightly remains outside of anyone who is in Christ. But for those in Christ, there's no condemnation. Not for those who are in some sort of law-keeping. There's not no condemnation in law-keeping. There's not no condemnation in my morality. There's not no condemnation in me performing lots of good works. There's no condemnation in me keeping some sort of uh, rules that we have come up with and me being a really good person. That does not what Paul says here. He says there's no condemnation in Christ. I brought a book with me this morning. It's a kid's book, Sophie and the Heidelberg Cat. It's a good one. I I would commend to you and to your families. In this book, Sophie starts off the story kind of on a bad foot. Her sister, younger sister, knocks her dollhouse over, so she shoves her down, yells at her parents, and goes to her room and slams the door. Sounds a lot like real life, right, sometimes, doesn't it? You know? And as she's looking out the window in her room, kind of feeling sorry for herself, she sees a cat walking. It's the Heidelberg's cat, the neighbor's next door, and this cat comes up to her and starts to talk to her, and she knows that you always answer a cat that can talk, right? And she's kind of describing what's happened. The cat asks, what's wrong? Like, hey, well, knocked my sister over, yelled at my parents, slammed the door, and, and, you know, I've failed everybody and even God. I know I'm not doing right in the sight of God. And so here's what the cat says. Right, says the cat, you just mentioned the Bible, so what do you think that it's trying to say? 
Easy, says Sophie. It's trying to tell us, how can we please God and be kind and obey? Be bold like King David. Be brave like Queen Esther and do what God tells you no matter how scary. Don't fight him like Pharaoh or trick him like Judas. Be patient like Paul and respectful like Mary. We can think, like Sophie, that perhaps if we were bold like King David and brave like Queen Esther, not fighting him like Pharaoh, we're pretty much a good person. We're not trying to harm anybody. We don't want to betray him like Judas, and if we're just patient like Paul and respectful like Mary, then maybe that's the place where there's no condemnation. It's not the place. And the cat recognizes this and says, the cat looks at Sophie, and are you? It asks. Not really, says Sophie. At least not for long. That's why I was crying before. It's so hard to be good all the time. And it always goes wrong. And the cat says, aha, let me tell you a secret. There's no one who can. Not your mom or your dad, your friends or your neighbors, and even your teacher when no one can see is surprisingly bad. And so he goes on to conclude this. The Bible tells hundreds of stories of people and all of them disobey God except one. So hope doesn't come from the good things we do. It comes as a gift from what Jesus has done. And perhaps we are a little bit like Sophie and we need a, a chat from the Heidelberg cats because we think that maybe if I do some things and if I'm like Paul or if I'm like David, then, then maybe that's the place of no condemnation. But we know that that always goes wrong. But hope doesn't come from the good things we do comes from Jesus. The place of no condemnation isn't found in those things. It's found in Christ Jesus. Maybe we're like Sophie, if I could just be these things. But no condemnation is found in only one. So hope doesn't come from the good things that we do. It comes from what Jesus has done. Perhaps you came in this morning with this kind of dark cloud of condemnation hanging over you or just hanging with you. Seems to be one of your constant companions. Well, there's only one place to go for no condemnation. There's only one place to take that dark cloud, and that's Christ. And we go there by faith. And if we go there by faith, we can receive the good news that Paul gives us in verse 1, that there's no condemnation there. It's not allowed in. When you are found in Him, you are found in a place of no condemnation. It's only there where it's found. And notice in this verse that this isn't a future place. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now, that is a a present reality in Christ Jesus. You would expect us to think and to say, after all that we saw in chapter 7, after looking forward to this deliverance that's to come from this body of death, we thought maybe he'd say, there is therefore no condemnation when that future resurrection of your sinful fleshly body comes. But that's not what he says. It's not after the resurrection. It's not after one receives a certain level of maturity. It's not after you reach the the rungs on the ladder of of, of Paul and and Peter and and Mary. It's not those places where no condemnation is found. It's right now in Christ. This is all the more astounding after we've gone through chapter 7 because what chapter 7 shows us is that sin's presence remains while we are in this body. And so while there's 
tension now if we're in Christ. There's tension with the the sin and our flesh. There's tension. There's struggle. There's a civil war going on within us that was described in chapter 7. But even in that place, now there is still no condemnation in Christ. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, The fact is that believers are in a state of conflict, but not in a state of condemnation. Don't misunderstand. If verse 1, if you're going to use verse 1, and you're going to use it to make yourself feel better after your sin, then then that's not what it's being used for. It's not to be say, like, hey, I can sin all the more because there's no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? He's already said, by no means. That's not what verse 1 can be used for. If you're using it that way, you're off. The conflict is still very much on. But in the midst of that conflict, if you're in Christ Jesus, you don't want to confuse the conflict and your state before God. You are in a state of conflict. You are not in Christ in a state of condemnation. Your state, your status before God is as secure as Christ is risen. So when he says, if you are found in Christ, if you are in him, by faith in him, then you are in this state of no condemnation. To give even surer footing to this statement of good news, Paul gives the explanation of it. So verse 1 is the statement, verses 2 and 3 are the explanation. He goes on to say, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son, the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. Both of these begin with this and are connected by this this word for. So he kind of gives two explaining verses for verse 1. And verse 2 For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. I love that he describes the the spirit as the spirit of life. Perhaps he's drawing from the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 36 in the book of Ezekiel is this prophecy of the new covenant to come. And here's what Ezekiel says, 36 verse 26. I'm going to give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk. There's a living spirit. Cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Those new covenant realities are are realities that God promised. He, He promised the spirit to be given. He promised it would be in them. He promised that they would walk by that spirit. That was something that they couldn't do before. They couldn't walk according to the law before, because they didn't have changed hearts. The law is ineffective to transform, right? It was ineffective to save. But he says, I'm going to give this new time or this new covenant where I'm going to put my spirit within you, and you're going to do what you couldn't do before. And perhaps I think he illustrates this reality in chapter 37. Chapter 37 in Ezekiel, maybe the only other chapter in the whole book that I can maybe understand a little bit, is this valley of dry bones, And in this valley of dry bones, God brings him out to this valley, and there's just dry bones everywhere. And he says, hey, what do you think? Can these bones live? You know, God, just you. He says, prophesy. And what starts happening is the the bones are rattling, right? They start coming together. And what happens in Ezekiel 37, 
and 37, the breath of God goes in them. Or you could translate that spirit. And they come to life. He says, I will cause my breath to enter and you shall live. And the conclusion of chapter 7 of this valley of dry bones, 37 of this valley of dry bones, is found in verse 14. He says, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. I think Paul looks back at Ezekiel 36 and 37. And thinking, having those in mind, he writes, those, those new covenant promises that you heard, those are now in Christ Jesus. Now in the spirit of life. The one who breathes life into dead, dry bones. The spirit of life has been given to those in Christ Jesus. And it starts working in them. And what it works in them is life that they might walk. In chapter 7, verse 6, it says that, that this law holds us captive. But we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The, old, the law held us captive. It didn't bring life. It couldn't produce life. But it was co-opted even by sin and produced only death. It revealed sin. It provoked sin. Sin seized an opportunity through the law to bring about more sin. And, and this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians that the, the letter, it kills. But the spirit, what does it do? Brings life. And here the spirit of life frees from sin and death because... That spirit takes dry bones, fallen in Adam, and breathes new life in them that they might walk in a certain way. The spirit, he says, frees. In chapter 6, verse 18, he says, having been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. In verse 22, he says, but now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the spirit Freeze. This isn't something that you work yourself into. It's just, he says, here's how you're free. You didn't do it. Those dead bones didn't start assembling themselves. The spirit of life came and produced it. Something the Holy Spirit does. The spirit frees. So we look and we see that what is going on here is that it's more than just freeing us from the not guilt or from the guilty verdict, right? That no condemnation, yes, is, is secured, that we don't have a guilty verdict. We are not guilty before God in Christ Jesus, but it's also more than just a verdict. It is power over sin. We have been set free. So it's not just something that's it's a judicial statement. It's also an ethical statement. When we say there's no condemnation, he's saying, not only do you have the not guilty verdict, but you've been set free to walk a certain way. And he'll come back to that in a bit. The spirit of life does more than flip the verdict. It sets you free from the power of sin. How does it do this? Well, verse 3. In verse 3, Paul goes on to say, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. So the law, though is holy and righteous and good, couldn't grant righteousness. Righteousness. It could only condemn sin. It could only reveal what was already there in the weakened flesh. And what's in the weakened flesh is sin, and it can, condemns it. The law, though holy and righteous and good, couldn't break sin's power, but it only provoked it even 
further so that, again, sin took advantage of the opportunity in the weakened flesh to produce more sin. The law, the holy and righteous and good, couldn't forgive sin. Didn't have that power. Couldn't forgive the sin that had been committed. It couldn't do what God is going to say, be said to, done here, to have done here. It couldn't condemn sin in the flesh. It couldn't justify. It couldn't free. It couldn't give life. It couldn't deal with sin. But what the law could not do, God does. And God has done. Verse 3, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. The Father so loved the world that He sent His Son. The Father, having used the law to prepare the world, prepare the way to point forward to the Son, sent His Son. He's already the Son, and it's the one who is His own Son, who is already His Son, is the one who is sent. To use John's language here, the, the Word that was with God and was God in the beginning took on flesh, and He came into this world and dwelt among us. This was the, as John would call him, the one and only Son of God. And he uses two prepositional phrases to describe this son. He says that he has come in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Here's what's going on here, the, the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus just didn't appear to be man. He was totally man, fully man, took on flesh. In, in chapter 1, verse 3, he, he describes him as one who is descended from David. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, he said, God, in the fullness of time, sent forth his son. He was born of a woman, born under the law. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, he says, he was born in the likeness of men. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, says he partook of flesh and blood. And so this son that has been sent is the son of God who fully identifies with humanity. But he's not like humanity in every way. There's a different description here, isn't there? He says that he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. The, the description is different. Why? Because although the Son of God was fully man and fully identified with humanity, he is not like every other man in every way. All men are created and born in Adam. They, they then, we saw this in chapter 5, all are born under the fall with a fallen nature, a corrupted nature, a polluted nature, a sinful nature. So we could uh, agree with what David says in Psalm 51. This is true of us all. Born in sin, right? In sin I was conceived. Like, we are evil, born in sin. But was Jesus? Do you remember in the book of Luke, Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you're going to bear a son. She says, well, how can that be since I'm a virgin? He says, well, the, the Spirit is going to overshadow you. And in verse 35 of the book of Acts, he describes this a little bit further about why this is necessary. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus is not born in Adam Truly, his father is an Adam, but God the Father. He is now, because he is born of the Holy Spirit, is a new and better Adam. And he is called holy in a way that none of us could ever have been called. We are born in sin, Psalm 51, but he is holy. He has no corrupt 
nature. He has no sinful flesh. And this is absolutely essential for the deliverance that Paul speaks of. It's absolutely essential for justification. It's absolutely essential for us to receive the verdict of no condemnation. Right? So we're, we're splitting some hairs here, but they're really, really vital. That we know that we have one that not just fully identified with us. That's where we're getting the difference, right? Like if, if he's just fully man and can fully identify with us, that's great, but he can't save us. We need one who can fully identify with us and save us, and Jesus is that man. If he was born in Adam with a sin nature corrupted by the fall, then we'd be in trouble. Because if you're born with a sinful flesh, then what would the law do according to chapter 7? The law would come in and would reveal sin in the flesh. The law would come in and, and take that sinful flesh and provoke it, Paul says. That's what happened to Paul. But the new and better Adam, whose true father is God himself, is from God, and because he's from God, he comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't come in sinful flesh. He doesn't say that. He didn't say he came in sinful flesh. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. But as he was the one who comes in the likeness of sinful flesh, he still fully identifies with us. He's still fully man. He's the one, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, tempted in every way like we were, yet without sin. He's in the likeness of sinful flesh, and yet he's without sin. So he fully took on human nature, but did not fully take on sinful nature, so that he can be the one, verse 3, who can be sent in the likeness of sinful flesh to do, accomplish the other purpose that he says in verse 3, the other uh, prepositional phrase that describes him, for sin. For sin. But because there was no sin in Jesus, he can come... For sin. Now, this language, for sin, is, is the language of sin offerings in the Old Testament. Paul, he would have had access to and, and referenced it a lot. The, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is the exact kind of language that is used to speak of sin offerings. In, in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 3, speaking of these sin offerings, if it is the anointed priest who sins... Thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. Verse 14, similar language. When the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. Verse 28, same kind of language. Or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his Offering a goat, a female without blemish, for his sin, which he has committed. For sin, for sin, for sin. Paul says, Romans chapter 8, that Christ was sent for sin. And what they do in the book of Leviticus in making these sin offerings is that they would go and they would lay their hands on the, the animal that was being offered. They would lay their hands on the head of the sacrifice, symbolically kind of transferring sin from the person who committed it to this animal. They would transfer them symbolically, the guilt of the person to the sacrifice. The bull would become the sin bearer, and then they would slaughter it. And verse 3 says that the son was sent for sin. 
So the son is not one who merely lays his hands on the offering and makes the sacrifice. That the son himself becomes the offering. He becomes the sacrifice. He is the sin bearer. In the Son of God, God, he says then, condemns sin in the flesh. In the likeness of sinful flesh, Jesus can be both the sin bearer, the one who takes sin in himself, and condemns sin in the flesh. So that he could say that the law is now fulfilled because he's taken out the curse of the law on himself. In the likeness of sinful flesh, Jesus can be the sin bearer and be without sin. He can then accomplish this verdict for others, the, the verdict of no condemnation. If he has to deal with his own sin, he can't deal with anybody else's. But he is in the likeness of sinful flesh, not a sinner. He is without sin, and so he can secure for others who are found in him the, the no condemnation verdict. Because Galatians 3, he bore the curse of the law himself having become a curse for us. Because he who knew no sin was made to be sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 29. He made him who knew no sin, he made him to be sin. Or 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's how the no condemnation verdict of verse 1 comes. It doesn't happen apart from Jesus coming in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. It's that way or it's not at all. And so I like how one theologian said it, he, he says it well, and he gets the order of these, these prepositional phrases right to describe it. He says, he was not sin bearer because he's made of a woman. He was made of a woman that he might become sin bearer. Born in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin and bear sin, he did. Not his own. Sinners. Ours in Christ Jesus, our sin. He, he took the condemnation that others deserved upon himself. He, he could, took the condemnation, if you're in Christ Jesus, he took your condemnation that you deserved and secured for you on your behalf the verdict of verse 1 of no condemnation. And so as we see the explanation of verses 2 and 3, this statement of verse 1 becomes even better news. More firm and secure good news. The explanation of verses 2 and 3 makes it firm. And the purpose for that statement he lays before us in verse 4. He condemns sin in the flesh, having poured out the condemnation upon his son, Jesus, who was in the likeness of sinful flesh. He is the one who became a curse for us, and he condemns sin in the flesh in order that for the purpose that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The, the purpose of this sin-bearing sacrifice that is the Son of God, the, the purpose of condemning sin in the flesh is to bring about the free obedience to the law. Sin's penalty has been paid. Its guilt has been removed. Its power has been irreversibly broken so that those who are in Christ can walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You, you might have heard, and maybe even you, you questioned in, in chapter 7, this, this thought of, like, I wonder if I can be a Christian and yet walk in a way that's opposed to the Spirit. I heard this 
spoken of as being a carnal Christian, a fleshly Christian, right? There are no two kinds of Christians in this passage. There are the ones who have no condemnation in Christ Jesus, and then there are no others. And the ones who have no condemnation in Christ Jesus are the ones who do what, according to verse 4? They walk not according to the flesh, but they walk according to the Spirit. That's how they live. There's not another way. That doesn't remove the tension and struggle in the civil war of chapter 7. But it does say that there's a new power in control of the Christian. They don't walk in the flesh anymore. The law's curse will never fall on those who are in Christ. Jesus already took it. And so now the law is not something to run away from. It's actually something that is embraced, loved, and enjoyed. The the law, we've used this before, right? The law, if we're in Christ Jesus, the law is now in-lawed to us. We're married into the family. And what's in the family of Jesus? The, The law. He loved it. He walked according to it. He kept it. He fulfilled it. He delighted in it day and night. Like it was to him as sweet as honey. It was more precious than gold. He loved the law. And those who are in law to the law through Jesus don't live however they want to live. They live like Jesus. Holy lives. Keeping in step with the law. They, they do this not because they're trying to earn the verdict of no condemnation. Christ didn't have a verdict of condemnation hanging over him. He was this new and better Adam, the one who doesn't have any condemnation in himself. He came and bore ours. So therefore, in him, there's no, con- no condemnation for us. So condemnation is not hanging over us in Christ, so that now we need to walk in the law and walk in the Spirit so that we might earn that status. No. Those in-law to the law through Jesus don't live however they want because we already have the status of no condemnation. So instead, those who are in Christ, who are given the very spirit of life, walk according to that spirit. And what does it look like to walk by the spirit? Here's what's opposed here. The flesh and the spirit. To walk according to the flesh is to walk Opposite of the Spirit. To walk in sin and all the the deeds of darkness that Paul lists out in so many other places. But to walk in the Spirit is to walk in line with, I think the best way to describe it is to say, to walk in line with the law. And what sums up the law? Love supremely for God. Unchallenged because we love with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what's the law thought of horizontally? Love to neighbor. The same love we received, we then push out. Those who walk according to the Spirit should look a lot like that. Because that's how Jesus lived. That's what He looked like. And so again, it reminds me of this phrase that we've used so often because it's so helpful. Written by, by William Cooper, now freely chosen in the Son, now we freely choose His ways. We're under the direction of the Holy Spirit now. We're not under the direction of the flesh. That that power has been broken. The the spirit of life has been given so that we can walk in life now, not in the flesh, because they're opposed to one another. But notice the order carefully again. In Christ, there's no condemnation. And those with no condemnation, what do they do? They walk not by the flesh, but by the spirits. And that order is vital for that walking. Tim Keller says, do you realize that it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance? 
You don't go to verse 1 before verse 4. You receive righteousness. You receive justification. You receive this verdict of no condemnation. And after having received it, you walk by the Spirit of life. In Christ, the verdict is yours. There's no condemnation in Him. Because that's true, you don't behave a certain way in order to belong to Him. You already belong to Him, and because you belong to Him, then you start living a certain way. And we don't want to get those out of order. You belong to Christ. So the verdict is yours. And when you have this verdict of no condemnation, like all of a sudden, you, you have this freedom. Freedom to walk in love. To walk in the spirit of the law and to receive the law and not to fear the law. Because it can't condemn you anymore. I'm in Christ. So the in-law might condemn me, but the, the one I'm married to, the one I'm united to, my spouse, Christ Jesus, he protects me and says, no, there's nothing you can do here. There's no condemnation for him. So the conflict still remains, but the state of condemnation that we deserve doesn't. Because of Christ. And so we hear again, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Such a needed passage, such a needed verse, needed because there are so many sources that tell us the opposite, aren't there? Satan is the one who's called the accuser. He stands accusing even the saints day and night. He wants to bring any charge against them. He throws condemnation. How about others? Does this world seem like a condemning place? You receive condemnation from outside sources? Or how about this? This is my hardest one. How about yourself? You have a voice running? Condemning voice? Not good enough? Failed. Broken. Sinful. Deserving of wrath and judgment. Anybody else have that voice? Christian, let's not let that be the most prominent voice. Let's not let any other voice other than the voice of God be the voice that we receive. Amen. Christian, leave the judgment to God. Satan may say, you're guilty, you're a sinner, you deserve God's wrath. Others may say, you're guilty, you're a sinner, you deserve God's wrath. We may say, I will say, I'm guilty, I'm a sinner, I deserve God's wrath. All of them would be right, but what we say is, well, they might all say this, but what does God say? He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so if we hear the condemnation from different sources, here's what we're going to do. Together, we're going to go to the source of no condemnation. And we're going to go by faith, and we're going to read it again, this really good news that's good news not just for the future, but it's good news for us right here and now in the midst of our conflict of our chapter 7 and chapter 8 house. And we're going to try to move from the shadows into the warmth again, and we're going to take God at his word. So here again, Christian, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we 